Hello, and welcome to What Moves Us, episode nine. Not just episode nine. Christmas special. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Here's my bell. <laughs> Johanna, I notice you're not wearing your Christmas jumper. No, that's because I am meeting a client afterwards, so I didn't think it was appropriate, but I will do later. And what would it say if you were wearing it? Meet me under the mistletoe. <laughs> you have any mistletoe on you? <laughs> no, but figuratively speaking, I have. Imagine. <laughs> we also have a guest today who is David Watts from CCD. And what's CCD? Ah, CCD, we're a design and ergonomics and human behaviour based um, consultancy. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. You're not wearing a Christmas jumper either. No, well, really? so I don't own a Christmas jumper, which is incredibly miserable. And oh. I did mean to bring my hats oh. actually. The cake princess, where is my mince pie? <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> I don't know speechless. why. No, but you know, I don't, I, I, you know, I thought about this yesterday. I did think mince pies, and that was about as far as it got because I got um, because we've been away for a few days. I've kind of got a bit out of sync in my organisation, and I just wasn't in the mood for Christmas yesterday to do some Christmas baking because I was sort of like because I've got a whole pile of Christmas cakes that all need decorating for people. And I was thinking about, should I go up in the loft and get the Christmas decorations? And I'm going on a Chris, Christmas wreath-making class on Thursday, and I thought, Christmas can wait till Thursday. That's what I thought. Right. So, and I also, because I wasn't under pressure to do anything today, and I've got a busy week, I just thought, no, I can't, can't be bothered. Oh, well. Sorry. Really not worth it. <laughs> I did almost, though. See, this is why I should have done, because I did almost go into one of the nice Indian sweet shops on the way here to get some Indian sweets, because I was feeling a bit sweet, but then I thought, no, I can't be bothered to do that either, because I was just in one of those sorts of moods. So I really do apologise, because we should actually mention that we're in Second Home. And there's a bit of history to Second Home, isn't there, David? In what sense? In the sense well, that what it was before what it, it was, was Second uh, Home. Yes, so we're in this... Um, amazing building for people who haven't been here um, that was a carpet factory five years ago and is now this uh, it feels like interesting what the 60s thought a space station would be like it's yes so there's a lot of um, well it's not actually glass but uh, and thousands of plants all over the place Um, but and not a straight wall in the building I don't think apart from the outside that'd be too conformist that would be yes yeah, it's, um, uh, it's an interesting place to work. And for those that don't know where Second Home is, it is close to Brick Lane and the Truman Brewery. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So we are in the heart of the East End, and I think it's the first time we've actually been to the East End on our podcast journey. Yeah. So, new place for us. Okay. Getting more hit by the day. <laughs> <laughs> so, as it's a Christmas special, what are we going to be talking about today? Christmas disruptions. Or engineering and information. (laughs) (laughs) How we all get home on time. How we, or wouldn't it be nice? And it was really fun because when we were starting to talk about this, I said, oh, I should recount my story today because um, I've been up to Birmingham today to um, the High Speed Rail College to see um, the outcome of some Innovate UK work that um, Paulie and HS2 have been working on with the High Speed Rail College to build a digital twin. And I was um, I was running a bit late to Euston this morning to catch my train, 
um, because my train from Brighton had been delayed. But as we all know, I will miss a train to go and get a cup of coffee because I cannot get on a train without a cup of coffee. It's like, um, it's a bit like I'm a driver or something, you know, you know, where you see the walking up the platform, big flask of tea and that, you know, I'm like that. And the problem with Euston with all the work going on at the moment is there are not many places you can get coffee these days. So everybody is at a well-known chain because there is only one coffee shop and I'm stood there and I have 10 minutes I still have to collect my ticket and all the rest of it but I've I've got time I've got time and I make it yeah I've got my coffee I've collected my ticket and I'm stood in front of that lovely huge departure board in Houston and my train is delayed now I have got I bought my ticket online and I'm getting reminders to go and collect my ticket it is ready to collect yeah. but no information about the train and I was on a book service I could only travel on one train and there was nothing nothing did, did at you all. book it from the operator directly no there I booked go. it from a new app called train pal well maybe they need to use the open data feeds. and allegedly it's Chinese allegedly somebody was telling me does he use facial recognition I don't well I don't know about facial recognition but it was a bargain <laughs> £22 return to Birmingham. Right. In the peak. So are you saying there was no information, you weren't being told anything by the app, or you weren't being told anything in the station, or neither? Nothing at all. So it wasn't until I looked at the departure board, and the only thing it had up there was I should have been on the 813 train, and it just had up... 818. No explanation of what 818 meant. And I also thought it was interesting that they've removed the information booth yeah. from the middle of the concourse. So it was sort of like, so it was like, you know, sort of like swivel head, you know. What does 818 mean? Does it mean the train will board at 818? Does it mean it's leaving at 818? And then, see, and then of course, you come across your other dilemma, or you do when you're a lady of a certain age. Have I got time to go to the toilet now? Because I've got my coffee, and I'm not boarding the train, but I actually need... But where would you put your coffee when you're having the toilet? <laughs> I don't want to go into that. <laughs> <laughs> and that is just brings up the... the it sounds a bit like you got the service you paid for, because you got a cheap... <laughs> Cheapy tickets. I don't think it would have made any difference whether I'd have paid full price at £88 or whether I had the the bargain basement. (laughs) Because I was comparing prices with colleagues on the way back from from Birmingham this afternoon and I did have the best price tickets, the most competitively priced. So I guess that's the point about actionable information. That we seem incapable of or unwilling to provide information that allows you to plan do anything which I don't which I don't understand you know, I had the same similar experience of catching a train last week that was delayed and it was one of those ones where it was I think it was like 717 and then it says 718 7, and then when that passes it says 719 and when that passes it says 720 yeah. and you just think well if you just told me it was going to be 725 I would have gone to the toilet or gone and got a coffee yeah. but and because it's And that is the thing, isn't it? It's about information at the right time to enable you to make decisions about how you spend your time. So part of it is about, am I going to be late? Or part of it is, do I do something else that's meaningful in my time? Particularly if you're in a rush and you're thinking, actually, I'd quite like a coffee or I'd quite like to spend some time doing something else. But you daren't do it because you're not getting told anything. And... 
I don't how long have you worked in transport, Dave? Because you work um, across different industries yes, as well. Yes, so we so yes, we, so we work we do a lot of work in rail, but we've worked across airports and ports and roads for oh crikey, the last twenty years. So So is rail unique in the fact that it's still as bad at providing information as before we had digital technology. I'd argue with that. It's not as bad. I think our expectations are much, much higher of rail. Because we were in Madrid recently, um, and on the way there, the flight was absolutely not on time. There was no information. We were sitting at the gate at the departure time. You just assume that you're going to wait, and at some point you get on the plane. You might arrive a bit early, a bit late, but you just kind of know it's going to happen but we've got our expectations of rail so high that we expect it to that minute but is there, it there is a, you're right, there is a different expectation because I think when you fly and maybe that's I don't know why that's a good question actually why that is that you kind of accept a, but a slightly larger because you've got I suppose you've got all of the in, within your journey you've got a bunch of other times that are all uncertain so you know, if you're if you're flying somewhere, you're fairly writing off quite a large chunk of time before and after. Yeah. Because you know you don't know how long the queue's going to be at immigration when you get there, and how long it's going to take to get a cab into town. And you haven't calculated exactly whether you can arrive, get your coffee, go to the toilet, and get to the platform. Yeah. Because and you're kind of proud that you minimise that time, aren't yeah. you? So, so, rail, so right, rail is rail is slightly different because we do work on a much more. I will turn up two minutes before, not two hours before. Yeah. Some people and do. I mean, I'm quite... By the sounds of it, you turn up at one minute and 30 seconds before. <laughs> I do. Woe betide that coffee machine not be ready. <laughs> I do. But I think in some ways I'm quite irregular because I travel so frequently. I think probably most people who don't particularly people who don't travel regularly, they allow plenty of time to yes, do their journeys. I mean, because if you were to take my husband, he would never do what I do in terms of turning up. You know, I mean, like, I will... I mean, it was the first time this morning for a long time that I'd, I'd travelled at 6.30 in the morning from Brighton. And I, I literally run down to the bus stop to catch my bus. Yeah, I'm leaving the house five minutes before I get my bus, even though I know it takes eight minutes to walk there because I know it's all downhill, so I can sprint. Yeah, and I know I will make it. Downhill <laughs> <laughs> being important. Yeah, it, it is very important. Very but efficient. I do, I do make it. And goodness knows what all my neighbours must think if they ever saw me sprinting down the road. <laughs> and so... And I've timed it, you know, and I time it to the exact... I know how long it's going to take me to get my coffee in another well-known coffee chain at um, Brighton Station. I know how long it's going to take me to get through the barrier, you know. There is a difference between... Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I think, high frequency... Whereas I think research shows that most people travel you know turn up between half an hour and 45 minutes before a journey because, because of the anxieties we experience when we travel I mean I have the same anxieties but <laughs> for 30 <Yep>. seconds <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of maybe I like the enhanced anxiety of like am I going to make it or not and just like the fact that oh yes no I'm not I'm going to be in trouble and all the rest of it maybe I just like all of that gamified but, rail travel your own way but but I think I think yeah I think to go back to your your point about is it 
different in other sectors. I think all across our experiences across all transport, there is this, um, I suppose, challenge of, of how you do something that suits passengers versus what's the operational and organisational need. So I can understand in the same way that um, you get called to your gate in a time that suits them because actually they want you there so they know that they can control you and get you, yeah. particularly if you're flying low cost because they've got such a quick turnaround. They don't mm. want to suddenly be boarding and they've got a 20 minute turnaround and find you're still buying perfume or you know, having a beer. Same with the railways, I guess. You know, If there is a bit of a delay, they don't want you disappearing off somewhere. Ideally, I mean, it's slightly different because they don't have to get your bags off if the train leaves without you, it is your fault. But there is always that challenge behind what the operator is trying to achieve. And that isn't always perfectly aligned with how we as passengers, and I guess that's the sort of difference and I suppose you, we're seeing at the do moment. Do you think if they gave you... The, do you think that the, they're worried then if you if you have all the information then you would make your own decision to go away and come back 20 minutes later uh, they might it might it might be to do with that but I mean, there's, there's something sort of fundamental behind the kind of I think we we often scratch our heads around the kind of language of when something's gone wrong why organizations hide behind this kind of language of um, you know, operational incidents or they don't feel able to kind of explain just what's happened yeah which kind of bemuses me really why but you see, just, why you wouldn't just tell people but I've not worked as a train operator to know well, well, well yeah, we can't say that or I don't I mean we generally don't I know think, <laughs> or, or yeah or is it actually yeah they just don't they really I don't, don't know I mean I you know having sort of you know because I think there's having managed stations and having managed King's Cross during the whole redevelopment um, I think there's two sorts of um, ideas there because we did quite a big um, when it was GNER before the development started and we realised that there was going to be issues with platform capacity we did quite a big study into how we could turn trains around quicker because we were going to be looped because on average we needed half an hour and we at some on some pla- on some trains we'd have to tra- turn them around in as little as 11 minutes and the 225s at the time um, they actually take about five minutes just to clear the platform before you could even start thinking about boarding them so we and we used the airline analogy Ryanair in terms of how do you quickly process that but um, and part of the conclusion there was that you actually needed to sort of like inform passengers what was going on so you could take them on that journey so they would they so they would be on that get set stage you know say that your train will be boarding in five minutes so be ready at because we used to do queuing then as well at king's cross which i think was a very effective way of managing crowds it's a wonderful passenger experience but people kind of liked the idea because particularly when you go back to the fact that particularly on long distance operators who tend to be more leisure irregular business travel rather than your commuting people feel quite comfortable with being chaperoned in a way because it gives them confidence that they're still moving on their journey and that something is happening particularly if you're going to be 
announcing at a late stage. So if you're in a queue at 15 minutes before and you know that five minutes before you're going to get the announcement to go on, it doesn't get rid of that sort of, that tension of all of a sudden I've got to rush for the train. Mm-hmm. But I think it does give give people confidence, and I can't remember now what the other point but, was but, that I was going to But I guess to. that's what we don't do generally in transport is, I guess, to your point, we don't know as operators the exact oh, and that timing. was the language. Well, yes. Well, sometimes I think operators hide behind that because I think there are so many incidents that actually could be fitted into a category and you could sort of like give an estimate on them. But for whatever reason, we don't. And I think part of that is that the railway um, likes to run under a command control structure, which from an operational point of view you want to consistently deliver the same thing every day and repeat the behaviour but when you're moving into the field of user experience customer expectations command and control doesn't work very well and I think probably technology is enabling us to move out of that command and control but we're not doing it very well but just going back to that language as well I think part of that is also about you kind of have here's the operator response on one you know whether whatever it is you know track circuit failure um, that means absolutely nothing to me. Precisely, but you know, <laughs> so you get somebody who says a comms person to try and explain what does you know a track circuit fit, and how do you then make that a language that everybody understands, and nobody really, and you just end up with operational incident, mm. yeah, or you know, um, yeah. fatality, you know, or or whatever. What what does all of this mean? And really, you want plain English, don't you? But how do you explain operational things? Because well, I heard want... a cl- I heard a classic one this morning um, on Gatwick Express because it was so busy because of the um, disruption on Southwest Rail this week because of the guards being on strike. The train was busier than normal, and so they decided to declassify the train. And half the train are looking around bemused, particularly What's because that? yeah, what does it mean? <laughs> Just sit anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> totally. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting one because I suppose there's one thing which is about what that says about an organisation, and that kind of whole tone of voice piece, which is is an interesting thing anyway around organisations kind of having a, you know, wanting sort of authority and therefore trying to speak very sensibly and not have a sort of human tone of voice. Um, but I think that that kind of that sense of, of knowing what's going on, I think, is the is, is an interesting one because I think how you communicate, but also give people back that sense of control. Because I think that's the thing that um, some of the work that we've done looks has looked at about where people feel anxious and annoyed around that is that kind of feeling of out of control, and and maybe it's a challenge to the industry because I can understand at the moment that if you said, well, you know, I can't give like a five minute countdown to when we're going to board the train or announce the platform because we don't know. Yeah. But the challenge may be back to the industry is to say, actually, that's what we've got to get to. Yeah, whether it's that or something else, we've got to actually challenge ourselves to find ways of saying, it's not, you know, my example earlier of, actually, we don't know when the train's going to come in, so we're just going to keep creeping it out. Actually, we've got to be better but at finding our, of our systems knowing it is going to be five minutes and because then we can give people a, a feeling of control because we're not just giving them this kind of 
is your is your is that statement informed by other industries work you've done in other I think just I think we I think we'd say we see the same in um, so we've done work looking at um, in airports looking at what's your experience at the gate which is a kind of similar kind of moment. Sit and wait. <laughs> well, exactly. And, and, uh, and whilst lots of people have looked at airports and done all sorts of things about how do we improve security and check-in, because we've known for ages and people hate those bits, the gate is the kind of the last bit of the, well, one of the last bits of the jigsaw that still absolutely allows you, because you turn up, you've been told to get there, actually you don't really know how long you're going to be sitting there, yeah. There isn't very much there to do. You know, it's designed as a kind of a 10, 20 minute waiting space, but you could be there an awful lot longer. Yeah. And there's just a bit like, you know, sometimes you, you moan around about train stations, about there's a bunch of staff wandering around mm-hmm. and not telling us anything. Same at the gate, isn't it? You can sit there. And you're always printing. There's people you're printing. printing. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> How are you and printing if anyone's not on the plane? We're supposed, to be on, we're supposed to be boarding now, and you're still printing and typing away at your screen. And you just think, and there's all this useless information about, you know, please take a seat, and, you know, some I'm people quite are standing often there are enough seats, aren't there? Should I be in the queue? Should I sit here? Moment, I don't know. Which actually has an awful lot of peril parables with, um, although I thought that was kind of a bit of an irony because what you were saying earlier about different models of doing it, I remember with HS2 talking about how we, you know, is there a kind of a gate model where you try to mm. corral people at the gate ready to go down onto the platform, um, which is a bit ironic if we're saying actually gates are not a terribly great experience. Well, I think, well you see, I think HS2 is um, interesting because they kind of have a, a different type of problem because they've got long trains, big stations, lots of people getting on them. Yeah, yeah. So that's about not just about the quality of the information that you're giving people, but also about efficiently getting people onto a train yeah. because well, we have experience I, of that. I, I often I often describe you know, um, HS two as it's going to it's going to feel a bit like you know sort of like Clapham Junction on high speed or something because it's going to be there's going to be so many trains so many yeah. departures so many people that you've got to and it will only work if you efficiently do it in terms of taking people on that journey but well, but absolutely. not just taking people on that journey but actually making them feel as though they are accepted experiencing something that is pleasant yeah. and actually doesn't make them feel as though they're being pushed along and nudged and going well, that's through. Why we, when we did the first, the original, some of the original stuff about HS2, we had that concept of high-performing passengers. Yeah. How do we get passengers to perform coffee. better? Yes, it's coffee. <laughs> yeah. To help themselves, to help us, to help themselves. Yeah. And some of that, an interesting concept. Yeah. So what sort of things did you explore in terms of a high-performing passenger then? I mean, a lot of it, I think does come down to information, but about, again, information at the right time. So I can remember us talking about um, how do we just, and it's, and it's kind of, um, you know, marginal gain stuff, some of it. So I remember us having conversations about um, how could we get people to um, get off the train faster and not get off the train, put their bags down and kind of wonder where do we go now? So what information can we provide on the train, countdowns, um, pre kind of alighting wayfinding so that people get off the track so people are A ready and B know where they're going um, before they even step off the train or the train's even stopped so there are a whole bunch of things that you can do 
but you've just got to have an aim in mind and, that's, how, and then how you deliver that. And that's quite an interesting concept, isn't it? Because if you sort of like bring that back to today's operations, there's an issue with train performance and capacity and that. Actually, if you do put if you passengers in control and they have the right information at the right time, do they become high-performing and does that make the system more efficient and run better? Well, I mean, you could, I mean, you could look at it the other way. You know, I know when we did... The, the, that first piece of work you and I did when you were at DFT and we were working for the Catapult and we looked at that trial that they did in the Netherlands about um, uh, information on the platform including you know where was busy and you know where the different facilities were on the train so if you can use that which I know more train operating companies are doing in this country now anyway to look at loading and so on but that, I thought that was a great trial of a way of visually expressing information in a really clear way. So actually you don't get a queue because everyone's trying to get on the same carriage. You've already got people automatically spreading themselves out, finding the empty carriages. And that gives you that performance benefit back again. So it is a, you know, that how we nudge people, how we influence behavior um, to help ourselves as operators. Do you ever look at the busyness of carriages? Um, we have done. Um, you know, years ago we did some work with we've done work with DLR and on the underground looking at it, um, various other pieces. I mean, we did we did work for, with um, HS2 just looking at kind of door configurations and steps and the influence of those on boarding time. But it's an interesting sequence of things that you've kind of got to get right to 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 get that kind of boarding process. But um, but uh, yeah, I suppose we haven't done. I can't think of stuff that we've done that's more that kind of platform based other than that review that we did. Because I was just wondering if you'd ever used it as a passenger in terms of looking at busyness and does that affect it if, if you looked at and thought, oh, that's a quiet, it's quieter down the end, I will move down it, no. down the platform. Because I don't even know whether I particularly pay attention to it. <laughs> well, it's not, it's, not, it's not as, I would say at the moment, where, where, you, where you can see it, it's not as kind of well... Yeah, that trial in, I know it was only a trial in, in the That Netherlands. was quite that glamorous was, in comparison was, to what they're doing here, it isn't was, it? Yeah, it was a really full-on mm. visualisation of, you know, a, a display that ran the length of the platform, you know, basically kind of above where a screen door would be. So it was very obvious as you came onto the platform, which is, at the moment we've got, I suppose, information, the presentation is a little more subtle here, so it's quite easy to make. But we also, we're probably the wrong people to ask, because you know here when you're it's not always it's not consistent information if it's on a departure board at one of the intercity stations you know it's who's reserved seats whereas on Thameslink it's who's on the train so it's not yeah, even it's not because that's also you can't trust the type the information. of stock isn't it yeah so it's not consistent information therefore you can't rely on it oh we're, we're, we're back to that word again aren't we trust because that's because that's part of the reason why um operators don't give out information because they want to ensure that you can trust the information yeah. but if you don't if you don't trust the information if you don't trust what they're going to say is going to be right at the right time does that lead to a whole distrustful relationship but that's why you have when during disruptions why you have uncertain information where it keeps creeping because they don't know 
where that train's going to go. So they can't give you a definitive departure time. Some of that yeah. is about distrustful information, but also... Um, Some of it's because you don't know who what the signal is going to put first. Well, there is that. So you've kind yeah. of got a disaggregated industry. <clears throat> I think also some of it is that more than we actually realise, systems aren't integrated within the railway, so they're not talking to each other. Because I've recently spoken to an operator about how, how can we give passengers information when we don't even know ourselves what they're going to do because they're not integrated uh, because of the whole legacy and everything mm. and I also think more of it actually gets manually updated than we actually think yeah. so I know that there are a lot of stations where you know on your example at the beginning where you're saying you know it it just moves on it's either because it hasn't the train hasn't that's making the the, the departure hasn't gone over the track circuit yeah. Um, and track circuits can be miles apart, yeah. so actually you don't know where they are within the system other than they're two, between two track circuits. Yeah. Um, but also it requires somebody within a station to be keeping an eye on it and to then just manually update, because I think we've all been stood on a platform where it said it's on time, but actually the time has gone, and it's yes. because it requires a manual intervention. So digitalisation of the railway is probably years behind where it should be. But again, I don't think that's, to your point earlier about not beating ourselves up, I don't think that's, you know, that's clearly not unique. No. You know, we look at, when we talk about trust, we always talk about, you know, the kind of um, variable message signs you see on motorways of saying, you know, there's congestion coming up and you keep driving and <laughs> don't find anything. And <laughs> all of that just leads to think, you know, you don't respond to it because you know, nine times out of ten, there's nothing there, and you just think, "Is that why? Is this some is that why you ignore the speed limit signs?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I often wonder on the motorway: <laughs> should, should you follow those or not? Because yeah. I kind of go halfway between. <laughs> I know what they're. I know what they're trying to. I know what they're trying to do, but at the same time, there will be congestion if you don't follow the. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's trying to get a kind of behaviour across a bunch of people that will mean there isn't the congestion that you slow people down and smooth the movement, but it's. But you know, we've all seen those signs, so you know it's not it's not unique to the railways. But it is if you want that confidence, and and I think you know there's there's, there's a difference, I suppose, between um, information during what we're talking about really, which is the kind of day to day perturbation, mm. as opposed to you know when it all goes completely pear shaped, um, and you know it's a much bigger. Um, well, not, I'm not talking kind of major, major incident, but I'm talking you know, a bigger kind of failure that's hitting across a number of services when that information can be then harder to deal with. You know, I think when we were talking a few weeks ago, I was talking about my experience at Liverpool Street when there was some flooding, which stopped a whole load of services. There was basically nothing going out of Liverpool Street. And what was frustrating in that was not just being told, just wait on the concourse, and you just thought, for how long but actually there was no kind of joined up information because what they also could have usefully told me was that actually that flooding was affecting the tube next door as well so it wasn't worth trying to get the tube over to King's Cross in my case mm -hmm. because I wasn't going to get there by tube but and I guess it's, it's that it's that kind of view of the world in your little railway bubble mm. and actually as passengers we're now starting to integrate and, and use all of these other channels to think okay what are my options 
Look on Twitter. Look on Twitter, but I might be looking on, you know, City Mapper. How do I mm. get home in a different way on a different line? What's Uber priced at the moment? And but as an industry, we're not. And maybe that's a challenge. That, you know, it's too hard. But can I find a know. buddy to share an Uber with? <laughs> Who knows? But you know, we're just we're thinking. You know, in that example, stay on the concourse. And so that, that, but that so. but that advice kind of hasn't changed. Or should I get a hotel? <laughs> but just stop. It's it's interesting though. That advice hasn't changed though in that sense, has it? In terms of what you get, because you know, going back twenty years to you know King's Cross, you know, s- stood on the concourse, you know, in major disruption, and somebody says to you how long and I, I quite often used to say I'd suggest go and have dinner somewhere and come back about nine o'clock or something and it'll probably be back up and running by then yeah yeah and it's but it's those types of things and I think what was that um that um information that was being um piloted up in Manchester where they sort of like had information that said um, oh, um yeah. wait on the concourse Radio or you've got green. time for time for a brew or whatever I thought that was quite amusing because it was sort of like you, you know you've got time to go and get your coffee or whatever yeah. so I thought that was quite amusing but say we've got a blank page and we can and we were designing the user experience to make sure they had the right information what what sort of thing would we be designing uh, uh, I think firstly the expectation these days is it's, is it's coming to you across a bunch of different channels, you know, so it's not just a kind of single voice that you're, that you're accessing. Um, I think it is, I suppose the other thing that we're seeing across all sorts of things is that kind of personalization and how do, how do I make that um, wider kind of view of the transport activity relevant to me and what I'm trying to do? Um, and I think that's that's the, we're kind of an interesting moment where that's being acted upon across all sorts of different areas and different sectors. So that kind of personalization challenge about how do you stick that into your day and make a decision and understand the options um, across your journey and your context, um, I guess is is a kind of a uh, a challenge for how we would we would design something like that. Um, but as I said earlier, I think a lot of that comes down to a kind of a, a clearer drive to the industry to say, how do we turn this upside down and, and think much more from a, a, maybe for your blank sheet of paper, we've got to kind of throw away all the legacy stuff. I know we can't really, but um, in an ideal world, and if you could redesign it to say, actually, what would I want to know at this point in time? Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in, um, oh, stuff. I do, I, 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 the, the point about kind of trust, I think is a really interesting one because then it does take you into a, do I want to be given a piece of information? If I was told um, you've got half an hour, go and, have a, go and have a cup of coffee or something, and then you were sitting there and you were looking at your app and suddenly the train was leaving, you know, after 10 minutes. And that's the anxiety, isn't it? I'm not leaving because I don't trust you. Yes. So, so to deliver that kind of service, yes, the, the industry has to be in a position where our data is better and we know it will be half an hour. Now, 
clearly in major disruption, that's difficult because you're, I guess you're trying to anticipate you know, how long it's going to take to fix something. And we're not quite sure how long it's going to take. You know, suddenly maybe it all is fixed and we've resolved it and we can get things back again. And but some of it's a lot so more complicated. Of course, yeah. Because when I was saying about you know, speaking to about systems integration, some of this is as simple as the, um, the trust system is telling you you have a train yeah. and it's telling you it's in the platform and it's ready for boarding but what it's not telling you is does it have a driver and a guard for example or does yeah. it have the operational staff needed to maintain it so actually the signal box might actually give up the train to say yes it's ready to board but then you know, you're sat there on the train and it's not going anywhere yeah. and it could because there's no mismatch and and there are two systems one's held by the operator one's held by the infrastructure owner yeah 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 and that needs to you know so that comes back to those legacy systems it all needs to join and integrate in together yeah i suppose the other thing that if, if you're really thinking about you know yes your ideal world i think that challenge of more significant disruption and how organisations, I know all the organisations have their contingency plans and so on, but how you can mobilise that more rapidly. You know, how often do we hear there's a replacement bus service and people saying, you know, it's absolute chaos, there's no staff there, it's, you know, <laughs> it's an absolute bun fight to get on the, on the bus and it's just absolute chaos. And actually, it's not just a hideous experience because you're two hours late because you're, the train's aren't there actually the replacement is almost not worse exactly because you do get there in the end but it's a pretty hideous experience so I think there's a really interesting challenge to say could you rethink how you could do that you know clearly mobilization is a hard challenge you know, bus service being an obvious one where do you get the buses from and how do you do it but I think there's, a, there's, there's something there I mean we talk a lot with a lot of the people that we work with about how do you go kind of overboard with your experience when um, when you've got a kind of moment of pain. Um, and you do hear lots of really nice stories about, you know, okay, it was really bad, but they came around and gave away free water, or they, you know, they did something to try and recognize that this was a painful moment. And I think that does buy you something. And that's interesting, because I was thinking in terms of the presentation that we did, um, of how you make the um, the security process um, better um, at Skiphole when they were looking at the nannies yeah. and could you do something similar to that during a bus replacement service I mean sort of like you know, if, if, if Mickey Mouse was running bus replacement what would he do yeah you'd have someone there serving you know bringing out cups of tea while everyone was waiting in the line. Yeah. You'd have some organisation out there so it wasn't just a mass of people. You know, you might have to throw some people, some staff at it. Um, you know, it's not simple, but thinking how do how might we achieve that and how might we do that is is always, I think, in these things the first step. Because if you don't even make that step to actually think how do we go beyond what could we do uh, I, I don't think so but, it, but it's nice I like, I like that yes what would, I, what would, I, what would I, Disney do if they were doing a bus I don't think though <laughs> operators really <laughs> think about it well you know it's M-S-E-K-Y-M-O-U-S-E well we did well we did we spoke to an airport recently and we said you know what if you took Claridge's and asked Claridge's to run security service for a day 
know, oh, how would I get, they would I get sandwich different? and tea? Oh, probably, yes. <laughs> or actually make your gym look because it would be that time of day. <laughs> Whatever it might be. But, you know, sometimes that thinking about parallels and how might a different sector or a different organisation deliver a service that you're delivering mm. is a really interesting question and a really interesting way to kind of reframe the problem a little bit. Cool. I, I think that would be probably, I mean, if I was to take away a conclusion, that would be what I would say is actually think about how other businesses would deliver it because it, it does give you a different perspective doesn't it and actually it does allow you to frame the experience maybe a bit more because I don't think anybody thinks about a bus replacement service in that sense it's just a question of you're going A to B and we're getting you A to B and I think going back to Liam's earlier point about customers expectations they are higher and we do need to think about how we match those expectations because we don't expect to go A to B anymore. It is everything is an experience, isn't it? Whether it be good or bad. Yes. Cool. Well, I hope you have a good experience for your Christmases. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing so, us back. <laughs> so, thank you, David. It's a pleasure. And pleasure. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. <laughs>